a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You ready to uh, revel in wrong think today? Good. Because that's exactly what I have in store. Lots of thought-provoking commentary and articles that will... I don't know if they'll lift your spirits. I guess for some people it might it might be you know a relief to really understand what's going on. For others it might be more just like having some clarity about uh, what's happening in the world around us and uh, and better being able to understand what you and I can do about it. Because there's a lot of stuff that frankly is off our plates. And I think that the secret to having peace of mind is knowing how to distinguish between the things that you have influence over, the things you can control and the things that uh, really are out of your control. And and this is one of the hard things, but one of the reasons this show and other shows like it exist is to to help you cut through what's called the ephemera. The the stuff that doesn't really matter but nonetheless is right out there in the headlines and uh, you know it's whatever dominates the news cycle, that's usually where people's attention go. I think the best phrase I've heard for it is the next thing. This is what people are you know, changing their avatars on social media to reflect the next thing. Here's what's going on. You saw it earlier this year when Russia sent troops into Ukraine and suddenly, you know, boom, there's this sea of blue and white flags and everybody, look at me, I'm supporting the next thing. And yet what was it keeping us from seeing? What was it to distracting us from looking at? And I'm, I'm not trying to say that it's all a big conspiracy. I'm just saying... Somebody in media, particularly heritage media, has to choose what they're going to talk about and and where their attention will be focused, and likewise, our attention. But sometimes the most revealing stuff is what they aren't talking about. Give you an example. Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, sentenced to 20 years in prison for sex trafficking this year. She was Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend, mistress, I don't know. Anyway, she was his cohort, and she was convicted of helping him procure Young, meaning underage girls, for people who wanted to have dalliances with them, uh, presumably on his little pedo island down in the Caribbean. So, I mean, you know, everybody's focused on this. Oh, look at, well, look at what she's wearing. Look at her hair. Look at, look at how her family's standing up for her. And, and it's, you know, I, come on, it's a titillating story, right? I mean, it's, oh, wow, sex scandal, wow. But have you noticed... Nobody's talking about the client list. Okay, she was sex trafficking. All right, good. We got her. She's going to prison. Who was she trafficking to? Who was Jeffrey Epstein trafficking to? See, and that's something that we're really not supposed to be considering too strongly. Why? Oh, I don't know, because you might see names like, say, Bill Gates pop up. What was it, 37 times he flew on the Lolita Express, that private jet that Epstein would fly to and from his island or have flown to and from his island. A lot of other big Hollywood names, names you would definitely recognize, a lot of political names. Isn't it interesting? You know, in a, in a world where our press really was concerned with, with the truth, that's the kind of questions they would be asking, but they're not. Why not? Are they protecting someone? And if so, for what reason? 
Okay, I have a hunch. For what it's worth, here's my take. I think they're protecting very powerful people, including people in politics and some of the big titans of industry and so forth. Big influential people are being protected because if we understood the level of evil to which some of these people are willing to stoop, we would not only withdraw our support, but we would probably, um, well, we, we'd insist that uh, they be prosecuted for their crimes. And if, if the system wouldn't deal with it, I'm pretty sure there would be a lynch mob or two that would deal with it. People's tolerance for those who sexually abuse children are, is, is not, you know, we don't have a lot of tolerance for that kind of thing. So not urging violence, mind you. I'm just saying if we really understood what was going on, we'd put a stop to it. So maybe that's why there's some things that our press will talk about and there's other things that they're just, oh, um, there's nothing to see here. Oh, look, here's something shiny. Here's something scandalous. The hard part is getting to understand what matters and what doesn't. And in the grand scheme of things, you're going to find that the, the things that you and I have direct influence over doesn't usually extend to, you know, what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in the monetary system, what's going on, you know, in in Washington, D.C., for that matter. But we're supposed to believe it's the most important thing. Some will accuse me of being an ostrich, sticking my head in the sand, so to speak, for, for saying maybe your attention doesn't really need to be directed to everything political. But we've kind of been trained that way, haven't we? And it keeps people anxious, and it keeps them angry, and, and, and worst of all, it keeps us divided. And I have to wonder if that's by design. I mean, look, I'm, I'm grateful to see Roe v. Wade go down in flames, but for all the coverage that's been given and all of the reaction and the, the overreaction that has come to, to this uh, landmark case falling, it kind of makes you wonder what... Uh, what else is going on, and why is this being hyper-focused on? What's it keeping us from noticing? And more importantly, what's it keeping us from noticing in our own lives? So here's my, here's my solution for what it's worth. I'm not a professional. I'm barely a paid commentator at that. So there are things in your life over which uh, you have great influence and which really deserve your best attention and the bulk of your moral energy. But there are things that are going to be a lot closer to home, meaning they're not going to be making national headlines, probably not even local news headlines. And I'm talking about stuff like, how well are you caring for the people around you? I mean, do, do you know what's going on in your kids' lives? Do you know what's going on in your parents' lives? Do, do you have a neighbor who's struggling? You know, do you have... A friend who's, you know, dealing with a family member with with cancer or, you know, the list is endless. But those are the little things that, you know, very few people are paying attention to outside of that, uh, you know, little immediate circle of influence. But they still matter. And I'm of the opinion that the people who are actually moving the world, shifting it in the most realistic way, are the ones who are focused in on what's closer to them and less consumed with what's happening in that big picture political, you know, cultural scheme. It matters. Don't get me wrong. It matters. But I think it's, it, it comes down to how much of our attention should we really be putting on it? I hearken back to a talk that I heard given by Lavoy Finnicum's brother, Guy Finnicum, a couple of months after Lavoy was killed. 
And I thought it was such a fantastic talk from a couple of reasons. He, he, I felt I felt God's spirit as he spoke. I felt like he was speaking the truth with such power. It was like, dang, that that is really hitting home. It hit my heart with a lot of force. And the counsel that Guy Finnecum gave was this. 95% of our attention should really be focused on the stuff where we really have influence. And, and that means, you know, what can I do? And he was specifically saying, if you're not sure what to do, then, you know, his recommendation was take it to God, hit your knees, ask, really ask, what can I do? And maybe 5% of your attention should be focused on the, the bad stuff, the outer threat, you know, what are they doing? What do I need to be aware of? What poses a risk to me? I worry sometimes that we have it inverted, and I'm looking at myself, especially as I say this, because... I see a lot of things as I'm, you know, as I'm combing the news and I'm looking for content each day. Um, I, I spend way more time than I really want to focusing on the bad, the evil, the stupid things that people in and out of power are doing. But it just really struck me as I was sitting down to do the show today that uh, we've got to have more focus on the places where our influence counts. And for most of us, that's going to be starting within the walls of our home and then radiating outward to family, to friends, to neighbors, possibly to community. Some people are going to send some pretty strong ripples out there. And if you're one of those people, I think there's a reason for that. Can I be so bold as to say I think God trusted you to be the person he could count on to step up and be that light in a darkening world? But I've become more and more convinced over time that it's not as productive to just sit there and fight every battle, every battle that is as if it were a political one. Politics takes a lot of our time. It takes immense amounts of money. I don't know if you've seen this. There's a, a clip that's making the rounds on Twitter right now. A very disaffected individual. Guess he's been a Democrat for a long time. And his concern, his complaint is, as soon as the um, Roe v. Wade decision, sorry, the overturn of the Roe v. Wade decision was leaked. Remember that a few weeks ago? He says that's when he just started getting fundraising letter after fundraising letter from the Democratic Party. And I think it really illustrates. Politics is a giant sucking drain of time, resources, and energy. There are better places we can focus our attention, so... Maybe we should give that a try. See how that works out for us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Welcome back, I should say. I do want to mention I've got a new sponsor here that uh, I would like to bring to your attention. And that is Garage Door Pros, Southern Utah's number one installation, maintenance, repairs for home and for business garages. I remember this this being a pretty important thing, and especially if, if you're building a home and, uh, you know, you want to make sure that you're being energy efficient, you're going to want to get an insulated garage door. Yep, they've got them. Their doors are made in America. They serve St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Colorado City. Quick response, much faster lead than other companies can give you. And again, they're, they're, they're a new sponsor of the program. I'm very happy to welcome them aboard. 
why don't you give them a call at 435-525-2773. Better still, if you're close to a computer, go to Garage Door Pro Services. GarageDoorProServices.com. Well, let's jump in and talk about air travel. My wife just came back from Germany about a week ago, a little over a week ago. And uh, it was an experience. I mean, she was it was great. She got to go visit our daughter and grandkids. And it was uh, it was a fantastic experience, but she said getting there and getting back well, how can I put this nicely? It would, air travel just wasn't as much fun as it might have been. And maybe you've noticed air travel is getting tougher. There's major pilot shortages, the lines are longer. I'm looking at an article here from the uh, Daily Mail in the UK. More than 500 flights across the U.S. canceled today as pilots blame staff shortage on COVID vaccine mandate. And with messy 4th of July weekend expected, Delta's already offering customers free rebooking. Now, this was yesterday. No, day before yesterday that this article was published. 500 flights canceled, more than 2,000 flights delayed. Toronto's airport apparently is also experiencing delays and cancellation, that chaos extending up to Canada. Delta Airlines says its staff is working more overtime than it did in 2018 and 2019 combined, and it expects operational challenges this weekend. Interesting. I guess uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg had said earlier this month, or last month rather, that airlines had till July 4th to figure out the issues and work out the kinks so that travelers can have a smooth summer holiday. Let it be written. Let it be done. Ramses has spoken. (laughs) I guess that's how he's approaching this. But with 48 million Americans expected to travel this weekend, three and a half million are expected to do so via air travel. And it sounds like that's... That's going to be tough. So if you're going to be traveling, I guess go early. Give yourself plenty of time. It's uh, it's probably not going to be as easy an experience. Now, Terry Paulding, writing for AmericanThinker.com, asks, what is going on with our commercial airlines? Terry says, every night I hear a report on the news about a number of flights canceled. If it's a slow news day, you might find reporters interviewing a couple of irritated, stranded travelers. But the story here is thousands of flights are axed on any given day. Many more are delayed. And newsreaders just read the report without any real substantive questioning about, okay, why is there suddenly this great shortage of pilots? In fact, usually the only excuse that's ever offered is, well, there was a weather situation. But that doesn't work in places where there are no storms slowing things down. So Terry Paulding says, what's going on? We've never had a pilot shortage before. We may currently have more air travelers needing flights than a year ago, but not more so than before COVID. And yet, here we are, facing an entirely new problem. And it's so bad that American Airlines is offering pilots on its regional carriers double and triple pay for the months of July, for the month of July, rather, if they'll take extra flights. Now, Terry Paulding says it's not hard to figure out what's happening, despite the seeming prohibition on pilots saying anything about it. We rarely hear a peep from them, at least on mainstream news outlets. There's even this noticeable dearth of questions asked at Fox News of late. Nobody's questioning this fiasco beyond some Fox business report of a lot of pilot retirements. It apparently just is. Now, there are always going to be retirements and saying, as the link above does, that it's expensive to become a pilot. Terry says, give me a break. There's never been an issue before. 
Why consider it now? What job does one get where advanced training doesn't cost money? So let's put the blame for this pilot shortage squarely where it belongs. It's on the COVID vaccination policy. Many pilots who got the jabs are suffering physical injuries and have been unable to pass their required six-month comprehensive physicals. None of us want a pilot who has a heart attack mid-flight. And if you search the net, you can come up with reports, and he links to one here, like this one from last week that pretty much says it all. But they're not from mainstream sources, of course. These reports are forbidden fruit for any widely heard reporters. And there's also the flip side. If pilots refuse to get the jab, well, they can no longer fly due to mandates. So here's the perfect storm. If pilots are vaccinated, many can't fly because of vaccine injury a state far, far more common than our government would lead you to believe. In fact, it's something they are desperate to keep hidden. But if you're not vaccinated, well, you can't fly either. If you're in the military, many pilots go commercial after their service years, you have the same problem. So the routine feed of qualified military pilots who transition to commercial piloting is effectively halted as well. And there are ample stories of military doctors losing their jobs because they won't certify heart-damaged flyers. Terry Paulding also says, I note uh, that we've had an extraordinary number of military, plane, and helicopter accidents of late, none of which have been followed up on or logically explained. Finally, he says, I talk much, er, I remember much talk early in the Biden administration about a push to certify more and more minorities, whether there are, whether there are qualified candidates. Now, this was big news for a brief while. And he says, I don't know whether that push has continued, but if so, it might make a difference. I can only guess. Are airlines afraid they'll get in trouble for certifying too many non-minorities? Terry Paulding says, back in 2021, I wrote a bunch of articles about our surveillance state and censorship. And you can click on the byline for the articles if, or for the article archive, rather, if you want to review any of them. But Paulding says, I posited that if we succumb to the type of censorship and coercion, that has sadly now become routine, we will soon lose our free society and destroy our republic. So, and his conclusion is, at this point, we have lost our free society, and the republic is teetering. Terry Paulding says, if we continue to allow the government and tech giants to run roughshod over our rights to censor the truth and disallow open dissemination of important information while forcing nonsensical medical interventions on our people, we will lose everything we hold sacred. He says there must be more people brave enough to report real news on mainstream platforms. This story is one of, is but one of many that need our attention. The ramifications, once more people connect the dots, will hopefully lead to further exposing the sick program we've been fed over the last several years. Only then can we end it. I get it. For some people, that's going to sound still a little more conspiratorial than they would like. But I, I don't know if you've tried this, but if you uh, if you want to try something that uh, I would say is eye-opening, I'll just leave it at that. Google the words, died suddenly, 2022. And I'll, I'll let you draw your own conclusions from the results that come up. And I'm not going to suggest, yes, use Bing, use DuckDuckGo, no. Go with Google. Just see see what you learn. By Googling the words, died suddenly, 2022. Some really interesting things that are starting to take place. Again, out of sight, just off stage, or at least out of the spotlight, so as not to draw too much attention. 
but it certainly makes you wonder about uh, the narratives that we're being fed and whether or not they accurately reflect what's going on or whether they're just a smokescreen or a distraction to keep us from noticing something that could be very detrimental to a lot of the folks in power. Yeah, I got nothing to lose by encouraging you to take a look at it. I've got nothing to gain either, other than uh, perhaps a few more people's eyes will slam wide open and they'll realize that, uh, you know what? I don't need anybody's permission to think for myself. The good news is, once you make that decision, once you stop asking permission to think freely, that's the moment your freedom actually gets traction and takes off. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A quick shout-out here for lifesavingfood.com. In fact, I'm, I'm going to give you kind of an illustration here of why lifesavingfood.com is not only just a great sponsor and somebody I think you should do business with because they've been supporting my show for a long time, but I think it makes a lot of sense to consider uh, what what can happen when, when we don't take the time to prepare for um, circumstances that are really beyond our control. I want to share with you, uh, this is a Facebook post that a friend made. He drives truck, and there's a, there's a picture he posted standing in front of the gas pump, Wow, the figures on that screen are really telling. Looks like he put 165.79 gallons into his truck. Cost was $911.72. And he's got this look on his face kind of like, yep, this is how it is. Now he says, this is the average daily gallons put in my truck, and she runs 20 plus days per month. Now, he says, I haul mail, so my trailers weigh half what the average semi is pulling. He says, truckers are the lifeblood of this country and stand between you and a total collapse of your way of life. Two days. Two days is all it would take for all gas stations to be out of gas. Grocery stores, out of food. All restaurants closed. Every construction site, out of supplies. If the trucks stop, two days. You'd really start noticing. And within a week or so, he says anything requiring transportation would come to a complete halt. Inside a month, you'll start having power outages because the grid needs constant maintenance. And with no power, your phones and your computers are worthless. So we're currently a conservative $80,000 um, drivers short in this industry. Have you heard about this? Have you, have you there, Yeah, there's a shortage of truckers. 80,000 drivers short. Semi-trucks, he says, everywhere are shut down, sitting in maintenance shops because of a stupid little $35 part that they can't get because of shortages. Now, this is one guy driving mail truck. And he says, I know of at least eight trucks in my yard alone that haven't moved in months because they can't get the parts. He says, I don't think many, most of you realize how close we are to what I said above being an actual reality. Gas stations out of gas, grocery stores out of food, restaurants closed, and things grinding to a halt. Now, he says the purpose of this post is to give some perspective and encourage you to prepare a little if you haven't already. 
Start stocking up a bit when you go to the store. Get out of debt. Build up your emergency fund. It's better to be prepared and not need it than to need it and not have it. He says there will also be a lot of opportunities that will present themselves over the next few years. Get ready for them. Luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And he's got a good point there. I know some people would say, this is just glum and scary and it's gloom and doom. But no, really think about it. From the standpoint of when things are difficult, that means opportunity is knocking as well. And rather than, you know, wilting like a little flower and hiding yourself away, for some people, that's, that's their time to shine. Maybe you're one of those people. All right, I'm going to shift gears here for a moment. I, I don't follow TikTok other than I see a few TikTok videos pop up here and there, but I have become aware that the powers that be really don't like TikTok. They, they would like to censor TikTok, and I think the official justification is, well, we want to protect you from authoritarian influences. After all, I think China, or maybe the Chinese Communist Party, is one of the driving forces behind TikTok. Got a great Eric, uh, great uh, article here from Patrick Carroll. This is uh, from the Foundation for Economic Education. Efforts to ban TikTok are getting real, but here's why that would be a mistake. In fact, he says banning TikTok would defeat the purpose of national security. Patrick Carroll says, for millions of people in the U.S. and around the world, TikTok has become the latest craze. Creating your own videos and sharing them with others has never been easier Content creators who were completely unknown just months ago have now become superstars, and they and their fans are loving every minute of it. But not everyone is happy. In a June 24th letter to the CEOs of Google and Apple, FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr expressed serious concerns regarding the platform and urged the companies to remove the app from their stores. He wrote, TikTok is not what it appears to be on the surface. It is not just an app for sharing funny videos or memes. That's the sheep's clothing. At its core, TikTok functions as a sophisticated surveillance tool that harvests extensive amounts of personal and sensitive data. End quote. Now, that's some alarming language, but Carr believes he has evidence to back it up. He cites an alarming new report which claims that sensitive data collected by TikTok is being accessed by TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, based in Beijing. Everything is seen in China, a TikTok official said in a leaked recording. Now, Carr continued, it's clear that TikTok poses an unacceptable national security risk due to its extensive data harvesting being combined with Beijing's apparently unchecked access to that sensitive data. And he concluded by requesting a response letter from both companies explaining how they can possibly justify keeping TikTok in their stores when, in his view, the platform has clearly violated Google and Apple's own app store policies regarding data privacy. Now, Patrick Carroll says in one part of the letter, Carr makes a noteworthy statement regarding the likely purpose of the data collection. Quote, TikTok collects everything from search and browsing histories to keystroke patterns and biometric identifiers, including face prints. The list of personal and sensitive data it collects goes on from there. This should come as no surprise. However, he says within its own borders, China has developed some of the most invasive and omnipresent surveillance capabilities in the world to maintain authoritarian control. Carr's concerns about China's surveillance capabilities are laudable, but the idea that the U.S. government actually cares about this data privacy is a bit rich. I mean, sure, the U.S. Isn't as, probably isn't as bad as China on this, but this still feels a bit like the pot calling the kettle black. Remember Snowden? 
Do you really think the U.S. government just stopped illegally collecting data after he exposed their surveillance practices in 2013? Yeah, me neither, says Patrick Carroll. Now, naturally, Carr's letter has reignited the debate over whether the U.S. government should ban TikTok. President Donald Trump tried to ban the platform with a pair of executive orders in 2020, but a group of TikTok content creators secured an injunction later that year preventing the ban from taking effect. Trump's ban was then revoked by the Biden administration in June 2021, and the government has been conducting a national security review of the app ever since. Now, Patrick Carroll says, to be sure, the idea that the Chinese Communist Party could be accessing data without permission, that's deeply troubling, and it's something we should take seriously. But the question is not whether the CCP is acting morally. They're not. Or whether they represent a threat. They do. The question is, do Americans have the right to use the app despite the privacy risks? And the answer here should be a resounding yes. A ban of TikTok would be a blatant violation of civil liberties. The government has no business telling people what apps they can have on their phones. If individuals want to take the risk of exposing their data to the CCP, that should be their choice. The problem with the national security argument is that it's incredibly hard to quantify the threats in any objective way. What exactly is at stake here? What will be jeopardized if the CCP gains access to this data? We simply don't know. What we do know is that the national security excuse gets thrown around an awful lot and it's a convenient way to pacify the masses who might otherwise protest the ever-increasing increasing violation of their liberties. Now, having said that, there's a more fundamental reason why appealing to national security to justify banning TikTok makes no sense. National security is not an end in itself. It's a means to personal security. That's the whole point of defending the nation, is to defend the individuals within the nation, more specifically, it's about defending the rights and liberties of the individuals within the nation from foreigners who would otherwise violate those rights. The problem is, in their quest to defend so-called national security, our paternalistic overlords seem perfectly willing to compromise the personal liberty of millions of Americans, that is, their right to access platforms of their choosing without coercive interference. Do you see the problem? The whole point of national security is defending people from violations of their liberty. So it makes zero sense to violate liberty in the name of protecting it. But that's exactly what a ban on TikTok purports to do. In short, by banning TikTok, our rulers would embody the very authoritarianism they claim to be def defending us from. And that's more than just a little bit ironic. Again, this is from Patrick Carroll. From the Foundation for Economic Education, I've got a link in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. By the way, if you have not subscribed to my show notes, you're missing out. I make it as easy as possible. Go to thebrianheidshow.com, click on show notes any day, doesn't matter, pick a day, scroll down to the bottom, there's a subscribe button, give me your email address, I'll send you a copy every single day that I do the show. While you're at it, you can also subscribe to the podcast version of this show. So let's say that, uh, you know, your schedule requires you to, you know, find time to listen. Well, that's the beauty of it. You can listen at leisure. Just another option. Just another way I'm proud to serve you because you're a great American. Okay, got to take a quick break here. We'll be back. Just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. And a very heartfelt thank you to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George, Utah. Very proud to have had them as sponsors on the show here. Long term, Heather has been instrumental in helping keep this program going, as well as providing mortgages for people who need them. And for my listeners in the state of Utah or in the state of Idaho, you have an option. And I would suggest uh, that option is best used in contacting Heather when you need a, a loan, whether it's a VA loan, a traditional loan, even a reverse mortgage. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability, the clout, and decades of experience to help you get the loan you need without delay. Call her at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You know, isn't it interesting how religion is uh, currently portrayed as something that is so divisive that uh, it has to be banned from the public square? And isn't it interesting, too, the Supreme Court, I think, in, uh, in ruling last week, or was it earlier this week? Sorry. They're all running together. Actually had a, a pretty uh, religion-friendly ruling. It was, I'll tell you, they've, this has been a pretty interesting term for the Supreme Court. And I'm going to illustrate what I'm talking about here uh, with uh, the idea that religion is somehow treated as a very uh, corrosive and divisive influence. This was not always the case. Got a great article by Anthony Esselin writing for AmericanGreatness.com. Sing America. And he asks the question, must everyone cease to sing just because the village atheist is hoarse? Anthony Esselin says, a few days ago, the Supreme Court decided that a football coach at a public high school could say a prayer at midfield after the game without violating the Constitution. And he asked, how did we arrive at this pass that the Constitution meant to guarantee personal, local, municipal, and state liberties from encroachment by the national government? could ever have been used as a club to batter down those same liberties. He says, think also of the sheer expense of it all. Consider the waste of money, time, intelligence, and attention when, if the truth be known, such an application of irrational hostility to expressions of religious faith by public actors in the public square would mean that pretty much all the authors of the Constitution themselves would have to be lined up and shot for treason along with all those generations of teachers, students, mayors, councilmen, soldiers, policemen, legislators, judges, and ordinary people who assumed that an appeal to God on behalf of one's school, town, state, or country was a good and culture-forming thing to do, even, they might say, our duty. Anthony Esselin says, People will say that religion by its very nature is divisive. And if they have a slight historical sense, they may appeal to the dreadful 30 years war that embroiled Western and Central Europe at the beginning of the age of the modern nation. But he says the reverse is true. It's human beings who are divisive, especially when earthly goods are all that they hope for. Now hear him out on this. He says outside of the partial exception of Islam, almost every war that men have ever fought had nothing at all to do with religion and everything to do with earthly goods and earthly motivations. Wealth, power, land, vengeance, fear, bloodlust, even boredom. Almost the only thing with power to bring enemies together is the sense that they stand in judgment under a just God, 
to whom they must appeal in both the joys and the sorrows of life, and to whom they must answer when this life, all too brief, has passed away. Kneeling and contrition are great equalizers. Now he says, whether the coach was wise in the specific form he chose for his prayer, I don't know. That's a question that can only be answered by someone who knows the details of the circumstances. But he says, be that as it may, it occurs to me that that coach might instead have sung at midfield, joined by some of his players, any one of our great national hymns, and then his opponents would have painted themselves into a corner. Then they would have had to explain how it's unconstitutional to sing a patriotic song in a public school if the patriotic song establishes its patriotism on the solid ground of the worship of God. Can't sing America the Beautiful? Okay, how about just quoting the motto on all our coins, In God We Trust? Must we tear down the Lincoln Memorial because the president quotes scripture to powerful effect? Even to remind the partisans on both sides of the Civil War that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous forever? Perhaps the coach and some of the players might have sung the simple and stately song, My Country Tis of Thee, whose melody we took from the British God Save the King and renamed as America. The lyrics, written in 1831 by a young seminarian, Samuel Francis Smith, were intended to be sung as a hymn, and that's what the song is. Smith organized it according to a simple but powerful succession of thoughts and images. The first stanza reminds us of the sacrifices, even unto death, that our fathers made, particularly the pilgrim fathers who suffered so much to establish this land, so that freedom might ring from every mountainside. The second stanza moves us into the present. It brings that ringing joy close to home, making it more intimate and quiet and holy. It isn't just Pike's Peak and the Mississippi River that move us. I love thy rocks and rills, we sing, thy woods and templed hills. Think of the rolling countryside of Ohio or the evergreen forests of New England. The hills are like temples where you go to worship God, and the holiness is there to touch you. My heart with rapture thrills like that above. Smith is using the word rapture advisedly. Think of St. Paul, who in a vision was ravished into the third heaven and heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So profound and beautiful they were. We say that our love of this land, our homeland, is somehow like that, a foretaste of it. In the third stanza, Smith calls for what is downright miraculous, the sign of a new world. Let stones their silence break. He's thinking of what Jesus says to the Pharisees when he enters Jerusalem. And the people strew his way with palms, crying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees grumble and ask him to tell the people to shut up. But Jesus replies, I tell you, if these were silent the very stones would cry out. See what Smith has done? We Americans do not need an earthly king because we acknowledge our heavenly king. America is meant to herald a purer way of life, a more genuine liberty than men have ever known before because we derive our liberty from God. Now this leads us to the final and climactic stanza where Smith has been aiming his thoughts all along. The God of our fathers is the author of liberty. Smith is using his words precisely. The author, Latin, octur, literally gives increase because he has the authority to do so. And the liberty that God gives is authentic. It is not mere license which enslaves. 
Since we want to be free, we beg our freedom from him alone who can set us free, raising us up to what St. Paul calls the glorious liberty of the children of God. And the last line clinches it all. When we make the identification that the hymn has been leading up to, Great God, Our King. Now, if singing that in a public school is to be deemed unconstitutional, well, then we really are slaves to the central beast. Anthony Esselin asks, What are the secularists afraid of? That we'll have something that makes us one again? That we'll know the joy of a patriotism that is near to faith in God and lifts our eyes past the mire of political enmity and intrigue, vindictiveness, short-sightedness, and hatred? That we might rejoice and be glad? Is the clear means towards something like national feeling to be regarded as a betrayal of the nation just because of a puritanical secularism, a shut heart, and a dim imagination? Must everyone cease to sing because the village atheist is hoarse? Anthony Eslin says, not so. Let us sing it then and never be ashamed. Isn't that a fantastic essay? I've got a link to it in my show notes. You can access it at thebrianhideshow.com. That one's good enough. I might even recommend share that one with a friend. And since we're coming up fast on the Independence Day weekend, I really appreciate Anthony Eslin pointing out the, the simple truths of that song. My country, tis of thee. You know, I I know it makes some people uncomfortable, people who are like, well, I'm not really sure I believe in God, but I got to tell you this. I've, I've dedicated... I've dedicated the better portion of my life to speaking the message of liberty. And I, I've always known it was a good thing. I've always felt like liberty was good. Yeah, it's great. Let me wave the flag here. I'll shoot off some fireworks and show you. I'm serious about it. But nothing moved my heart to the point where I was like, you know what? I'm going to make it part of my life's mission to speak this message. Nothing moved me more than the understanding that God really is the author of liberty. And that for liberty to be authentic, we've, we've got to include his divine acknowledgement in what a great gift it is. I, I believe it is the greatest gift that he gives his children. And it's not something that we use then to go force religion on everybody else. It's something that we use wisely and use for the purpose of bettering ourselves and bettering the world, as opposed to just simply forcing other people to do our bidding. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm glad you could join me today. My goal here is to offer you food for thought. Not so that you'll agree with me, not so you'll say, my, you are so wise and all-knowing, because I'm not. But simply because I want to inspire people to think clearly, think independently, question the narratives that are being beamed at us 24-7, Make up your own mind and live according to the truth that you understand. I know it's asking a lot, and it's not something that everybody's willing to do, but I don't care. 
I don't uh, I don't f- spend a lot of time focusing and I don't spend time worrying about oh is my audience as big as it needs to be because I'm convinced there are people out there however big or small that audience may be there are people out there who are looking for the truth because it matters to them more than whatever is politically fashionable at the moment more than hearing ear or hearing tender words on their ears that tell them how great they are and you know pat them on the back and if you're one of those people I think you're going to find some some great stuff something that nourishes your mind and nourishes your soul in this hour of the show today. And if you're not, no hard feelings. If this is something that's just not your cup of tea, I take no offense. But my goal here is not to create, you know, this large mass of followers who will go everywhere and do everything, you know, that I tell them to do. Nope. I want to create leaders. I want people who will think for themselves and boldly step up and take off running, leading others. And helping other people find the path. So with that in mind, let's jump right in. You know, it really comes down to, at some level, whether or not we're willing to change minds or if we just would rather grind our enemies into dust. And given today's climate, you know, across the country, it's pretty clear which uh, which approach a lot of people would, would rather take. Ah, oh, yes, grind them into dust. What is the, what's the thing? Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, to see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of the women. Oh, we've definitely heard the lamentation of the women here this last week, right? But maybe that's not what he was talking about. I've got a great article here from, a, from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org titled Changing Minds Across the Back Fence. She says the Dobbs-Jackson case that recently overturned Roe v. Wade has generated more average everyday conversations about a Supreme Court decision than I've ever seen. She says, I've heard strangers walking by me talking about the issue while on their phones. Neighbors even discuss it over the back fence. She says, my mother had one of these back fence discussions the day the decision came down. She innocently mentioned the case, thinking the neighbor would be happy about it, only to be taken aback when the lady launched into a lament. Oh, what about all the sexual assaults and the people who didn't have insurance and the many poor children that were already in terrible situations? Did we want more of these? She questioned tensely. Annie says, trying to keep it civil, my mother acknowledged that there are many difficult situations, but pointed out that every baby is still a blessing and that every life is precious. She later told me that this interaction made her feel like leaving town and moving to the country away from the vitriol that seems ever-present in our current society. But the next day demonstrated that such a response would have been a bit premature. For a card came from the neighbor lady apologizing for her response saying she had thought and prayed about the issue, and she realized that my mother was right about one of the points she had made. Furthermore, she thanked my mother for her friendship. Now, Annie says, even though I didn't take part in the conversation, I was amazed and touched by the response. And I couldn't help but think how wonderful it would be if all of today's arguments and disagreements were resolved with such grace and civility. But in order for that to happen, two conditions are needed humility, and friendship. Now, the first, humility, is readily visible on the part of the neighbor lady. Rather than holding up arrogantly to the opinions she had formed, she was willing to humbly step back from them and consider what my mother had said. And in the process of doing so, her mind was changed. Her humility was further evidenced by her willingness to go the extra mile to apologize and make sure the relationship was still intact. Not many people these days have the guts to do something like that. More's the pity. The second condition, she says, friendship, 
is less visible rather and was a long time in the making. It was a carefully it was carefully cultivated rather over the years on both sides of the back fence. With a conversation here, a pile of rhubarb or a butternut butternut squash there, or even with a comforting word when someone was in the hospital. And in all honesty, it was this friendship that drove the humility necessary to make amends. Annie Holmquist says, I can't help but wonder what would happen to our country if more of us followed the example of these two neighbors. It is relationships such as these built in small communities and families that have been morally decisive in the concrete lives of individuals. Robert Nisbet wrote in The Quest for Community, Relationships such as these encourage work, love, prayer, and devotion to freedom and order, Nisbet explains. He says, quote, This is the area of association from which the individual commonly gains his concept of the outer world and his sense of position in it. His concrete feelings of status and role, of protection and freedom, his differentiation between good and bad, between order and disorder, and guilt and innocence, arise and are shaped largely by his relations within this realm of primary association. End quote. Annie Holmquist says this dynamic seems to be what played out in the exchange between my mother and her neighbor. Because the relationship was well cultivated and maintained in the local community, there was plenty of room for positive influence, influence that even led to a changed mind. Now, given that, she says, I can't help but wonder what would happen if more of us did the same, worked hard to cultivate positive friendships and relationships with those in nearest vicinity to our homes. In our broken, disconnected society, people are starving for someone who will reach out to them, to give them a friendly smile and a wave across the driveway, to be there in times of trouble. Those of us who will make the effort to be that friend and near neighbor may reap unexpected dividends. Who knows? We, we may even be such an influence that, we'll be, that we will change a neighbor's mind, laying another brick in the path toward societal sanity. I think that's a pretty noble aim. And I agree with her in the approach. Man, I'm, I, I so regret that it took me so many years to realize that, uh, you know what? Arguing someone into submission, grappling them down verbally and forcing them to tap out was not the way to go about trying to change minds. And I give full credit to Paul Rosenberg for his brilliant approach on how to speak to the brainwashed who helped me to understand, first of all, Brian, you are brainwashed. Just like everybody you know, we've all been brainwashed with ideas that, you know, this is the way things are and this is how it works and it's right that somebody else should have the power to come and force me to, to do what they want or they should be able to send men with guns and badges to come and hurt me and make me do it. That's something that all of us have been raised to believe from a very, very early age. And if you want to change people's minds, if you want to help them see the truth about, you know, why, why is personal conscience so important? Why are personal liberties of the utmost importance? I'll go back to uh, what I talked about in the last hour. Why is liberty one of the greatest gifts that God gives us? You're not going to do it by arguing or browbeating or just dominating somebody into submission. The only way to do it is to be a friend, to speak the truth with love, and to recognize that some people are just not in a place where they're ready to hear it. And to be okay with that. To realize that 
your viewpoint doesn't require other people to agree with you in order for it to be your viewpoint. I think that's my that's probably my biggest beef right now with the way that that much of society approaches you know having an opinion. Well, you have to agree with this and if you don't there's something wrong. You and I've got beef because you're not agreeing with me. I can only speak to my own experience here, but the day that I realized it's totally okay for somebody to disagree, even if they disagree vehemently. It doesn't mean that, oh, I failed somehow because I haven't convinced them. In fact, you know, maybe, maybe my job isn't so much to convince them as to simply show them that, look, I care more about you than I care about being right. And to let them understand that whatever I'm saying is coming from a position of friendship and love and genuine concern. And they may still disagree. But at least when they stop and really think about it on their own, they're not coming at it from the viewpoint of, well, gee, he was twisting my arm with everything he had to try to get me to say uncle. And does it work? Well, yeah, it does. And I don't mean on a mass scale. It's not like I'm a Pied Piper and have, you know, this legion of people following me around going, well, yes, he is speaking the truth and we will follow him. No. Usually it's something like we'll have an exchange and because I don't have to win and I don't try to dominate them into agreeing with whatever I'm saying, it may be months, maybe even years later, I'll encounter that person and they'll say, you know, I've had time to think about what we talked about last time. And they'll either say, I see your point, which to me is wonderful. And sometimes, rarely, they'll say, I've changed my mind on that. That doesn't happen when you're trying to change it out of anger. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. And just to let you know, if you're shopping for ammo, you should give some business to HSL Ammo. They specialize in high quality, new and remanufactured ammunition in the common calibers that you and I would be likely to use. Whether you're just going to go out and have some fun, whether you need some ammunition to, uh, to facilitate better training, and gaining the peace of mind that comes with skillet arms, or whether you're looking for something that is just a great store of value and will always be worth something to somebody, hey, ammo is a great way to go. HSL Ammo has been a great sponsor of this program, and I would encourage you, please, do your part and support them. You know, I feel a lot of frustration with the mainstream media. You probably noticed I tend to talk about it quite a bit on this on this program. But I want to emphasize it's not a frustration born of, of the need to be right when they're wrong. It's, uh, as, as Clayton Fox explains, it's, it's more a frustration with the insufferable arrogance of the constantly wrong. And especially when that, that insufferable arrogance is backed up with the idea that, uh, well, now, you know, who are you to question what we're telling you? It's one thing to be lied to, but it's another thing to be gaslit. And that gaslighting really Well, it just irks me. Clayton Fox says the media and the people who work in and around it, the blue checks of Twitter, have upped the ante over the last few years regarding how far they're willing to go to enforce various preferred narratives. 
Pick any major story over the last three years. Lab leak, Josie Smollett, uh, Russiagate, Ukrainian biolabs, ivermectin, hospitalizations from COVID and with COVID, January 6th, transitory inflation, and of course, Hunter's laptop. And you will find absolutely hysterical narrative pushing up front, followed by retractions, corrections, and outright denials as reality became undeniable. Now, in the meanwhile, our civilization was ripped apart. Our citizens were gaslit and impoverished. And in countries around the Western world, innocent people removed from polite society, branded as lepers, and fired from their jobs. Why? Because there's one story that just won't die, and for which no corrections have been issued. And that is the shibboleth that vaccination can prevent transmission, infection, and help end COVID. Now, while there's never an excuse for hateful rhetoric towards an intervention in the personal medical choices of law-abiding Americans, perhaps one could have, kind of, sort of, understood the campaign if the new vaccines had provided long-lasting immunity and prevented community transmission. They do not. Early on, we were told 9 out of 10 vaccinated people won't get sick. That was uh, from Columbia University, featuring Run DMC, February 12th, 2021. No, that's not a joke. Or how about Dr. Rochelle Walensky on March 29th of 2021? Vaccinated people do not carry the virus. Don't get sick. Or Dr. Anthony Fauci, May 17th of 2021. When people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they are not going to get infected. Yeah, he's uh, still fighting off his second bout with COVID. Now, by midsummer 2021, we were still being told unequivocally that these vaccines were a resounding success worthy of uncritical support. On July 27th in Scientific American, Dr. Eric Topol wrote, Vaccination is the closest thing to a sure thing we have in this pandemic. And not to be outdone, Dr. Anthony Fauci of the NIAID told CBS on August 1st, the unvaccinated were responsible for propagating this outbreak. But on July 29th of 2021, the Washington Post reported a scoop that the CDC was privately acknowledging that the vaccinated could spread COVID as easily as the unvaccinated. Occasionally, they're forced to report inconvenient facts. And on August 5th, CDC Director Walensky told CNN's Wolf Blitzer that they continue to work well for Delta with regard to severe illness and death they prevented. But what they can't do anymore is prevent transmission. Now, Clayton Fox says, while there is a mountain of medical literature available demonstrating quite clearly the failure of these vaccines to prevent infection and transmission, the August 5th declaration from the CDC director should have made clear that being vaccinated is contributing in no way to the safety of others, nor to the eradication of this virus. In fact, Israeli health minister Nitzan Horowitz was even caught on tape in September of last year, explaining that the use of the Israeli Green Pass wasn't intended to make a difference epidemiologically, but because it would help convince people to get vaccinated. And even vaccine poobah Bill Gates admitted in a late 2021 interview, we've got vaccines to help you with your health, but they only slightly reduce the transmissions. So there should be no question that continuing to suggest in any way that these shots are a panacea and that those who refused to get them were plague spreaders should have been thoroughly trashed by fall 2021. Nonetheless, on September 24th, President Joe Biden coined his now famous phrase, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And to our north, Prime Minister Trudeau called the unvaccinated science deniers, misogynists and racists, and asked rhetorically whether Canadians should tolerate them. 
And during the first week of January 2022, while kicking the unvaccinated out of French daily life and public spaces, French President Emmanuel Macron said he wanted he wanted measures to piss off his unvaccinated citizens. Now, with world leaders speaking this way, it's no wonder so many blue check elites took up the banner. Prominent media figures like Amy Siskind, Pulitzer Prize winner Gene Weingarten, and more have come out of the woodworks in recent months to share with us their enthusiasm for medical disinformation. Noted neurotic Howard Stern is all in on forced vaccination due to what must be his own debilitating fear of his mortality. Bill Crystal says the unvaccinated have blood on their hands. David Frum writes, let the hospitals quietly triage emergency care to serve the unvaccinated last. Charles M. Blow was furious at the unvaccinated. CNN contributor Dr. Leanna Wen suggested the unvaccinated should not be allowed to leave their homes. The raging Cajun even wanted to punch the unvaccinated in the face. Now, all of the above links and stories, and there are links to each one of them, were posted after Dr. Walensky's unequivocal announcement that the vaccines do not prevent transmission. All of the self-satisfied segregationists are supported in their vitriol of the blue checks of the medical establishment, like Dr. Paul Klotman, president and executive dean of the Baylor School of Medicine, who said on camera back in January that he isn't polite to family and friends who aren't vaccinated. Keep them away. I don't do it respectfully. I tell them to stay away and teach them a lesson. Less vitriolic but equally problematic, the World Health Organization's COVID-19 technical lead, Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove, continue to push the lie that the vaccination can prevent outbreaks as recently as January 26th of 2022. She is, as well, a blue check. And yes, Dr. Anthony Fauci still at it even as of April 14th of this year, telling MSNBC that harsh Chinese lockdowns could be used to get the population vaccinated so that when you open up, you won't have a surge of infections. Now, the examples are legion. Blue checks. Medical checks, Times col- medical blue checks, rather, Times columnists, radio jocks, presidents and prime ministers all have espoused misinformation and or hate speech regarding vaccination status. But they're all given intellectual cover for the, by the official reporting of the fourth estate. Even in the face of all the evidence, there's no epidemiological basis for discrimination. Our intellectual betters in the legacy media press onward the canard. On August 26th, the Toronto Star ran an article entitled, When it comes to empathy for the unvaccinated, many of us aren't feeling it. Then on December 22nd, published an explainer which stated that two doses don't stop you from spreading COVID-19. Comme si, comme ça. Back in February, MSNBC political contributor Matthew Dowd shared his insight that the unvaccinated do not believe in the United States Constitution because if they did, they would get vaccinated for the good, for we the people, for the common good. So I got to tap the brakes here because we're coming up on a break. But uh, I mean, did did you need some specific examples? Was it too broad to say, well, you know, these people have been wrong and they continue to persist in that wrongness? I mean, this is citing it chapter and verse, how, when and who the people were that were promulgating misinformation. I'm guessing you're probably more sympathetic towards the unvaccinated than most. You wouldn't be listening to this program otherwise. Isn't it scary, though, how easily the majority of the American public was played like a fiddle at a barn dance because of this? This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Really enjoying this article by Clayton Fox. This was published on the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org website. And it's the insufferable arrogance of the constantly wrong. And I know it may sound like, are you fault-finding with these folks? And I guess, yeah. But I think with good reason. Because there are some very powerful people and very influential people who have used that power and used that influence to promulgate misinformation and sometimes outright lies that actually have harmed a lot of people and marginalized people who really didn't deserve to be marginalized or otherwise treated like lepers in society. Going back to the list of the, uh, the people who were wrong and some of the examples of how it looks, an examination of the uh, New York Times reveals three articles written this year which overtly continue supporting the idea that the vaccines prevent transmission. First on January 29th in a piece entitled, As COVID Shots for Kids Stall, Appeals Are Aimed at Wary Parents. The author cites public health officials who say that in containing the pandemic, kids must be vaccinated. Now, it's worth mentioning that the current vaccines and boosters being distributed were designed in February 2020 to provide an immune response to a version of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein circulating prior to that. Not entirely similar to what's circulating now. Then in February 23rd, in a a hit piece on the Surgeon General of Florida, Dr. Joe Ladapo, the Times writes, when health officials across the country were urging vaccines as a way to end the pandemic, Dr. Ladapo was raising warning flags about possible side effects and cautioning that even vaccinated people could spread the virus. So Clayton Fox asks, was Dr. Lapato correct? Yeah, I think we all know the answer there. Finally, in a piece about uh, Novak Djokovic, Published on March 3rd, they write, Djokovic was the only player ranked in the top 100 in Australia who had not received a COVID-19 vaccination, which experts have long said will not eradicate the virus unless most of the population receives one. Now, they do not address the question of how a vaccine which does not prevent transmission can eradicate a virus, and they won't. As Israeli Health Minister Horowitz candidly admitted, none of this is about epidemiology. And even when mainstream media tacitly acknowledges the failures of the vaccines to prevent transmission, they skillfully elide the significance of this fact in order to allow them to continue to scapegoat the unvaccinated. In a dazzling display of sophistry, Time magazine moved the Overton window in this January 12, 2022 piece. These charts show that COVID-19 is still a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Now, the author states that due to the rapidly narrowing gap between cases in the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, some might think that the phrase pandemic of the unvaccinated is no longer justifiable. But with the grace of a ballerina, the Times goes on to tell us that because the vaccines are still showing efficacy against severe, excuse me, severe illness, the phrase, the phrase rather is still kosher. If an unvaccinated person gets sicker than his vaccinated neighbor who contracted COVID at a fully vaccinated wedding, that unvaccinated person is still the problem. Now, New York Magazine isn't lacking in similar gymnastics. On February 16th of this year, Matt Steed published a piece titled, Is Kyrie Irving Going to Get Away With It? Irving is the Brooklyn Nets player who famously chose not to be vaccinated and has become a fetish object for the COVIDian left. Steed acknowledges that Irving's vaccinated teammates were getting COVID at such high rates 
that it forced Nets management to allow Irving back to play in away games, but still calls the New York City ban on unvaccinated athletes a rare public health mandate with real teeth. Well, just seven days later on February 23rd, Will Leach, in the same publication, sighs, Unfortunately, it's time to let Kyrie Irving play in New York. And he outlines all the reasons why epidemiologically it makes no sense to prevent athletes like Irving and Novak Djokovic from participating, but says it would feel like they got away with all their BS. Also, they're annoying. I think that's a rare moment of honesty there, but uh, it was about control. It was about compliance. And if you didn't comply, that's why people were angry. Clayton Fox says, in this barely concealed hatred for the unvaccinated from media and government and big tech, even in the rare moments when writers such as Leach acknowledge the failure of the vaccines to prevent transmission, has real consequences. As in, people have lost their jobs. People have been arrested for trying to go to a movie theater. Families got kicked out of restaurants and patrons either cheered or remained indifferent, which is worse. A teenage boy at an uber-progressive and expensive Chicago prep school committed suicide after being bullied over an incorrect rumor that he was unvaccinated. So the stench of bad journalism rots people's basic decency. A January Rasmussen poll found that 59% of Democratic voters would favor a government policy requiring that citizens remain confined to their homes at all times except for emergencies if they refuse to get a COVID-19 vaccine. 45% of Democrats would favor governments requiring citizens to temporarily live in designated facilities or locations if they refuse to get a COVID-19 vaccine. 45% would put you in camps. Okay, just making sure we understand that. (laughs) As well as 29% of Democratic voters would support temporarily removing parents' custody of their children if parents refuse to take the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, unfortunately, these disturbing results are politically lopsided, but it's no surprise when you consider who the readers of most legacy media platforms are. Clayton Fox says the saddest thing is that these media outlets and their flag bearers really think their readers are all morons. The New York Times believes that in the midst of the Omicron wave, as boosted person after boosted person was getting covid They could tell you these particular vaccines are still the way to eradicate this thing and expect you to deny reality and nod your head. It calls to mind the quote attributed to Solzhenitsyn or Elena Gorakova. The rules are simple. They lie to us. We know they're lying. They know we know where they know we know they're lying. But they keep lying to us. And we keep pretending to believe them. Clayton Fox says, we have seated the better angels of our common cerebrum to people who may not have our best interests at heart. And a sycophantic laptop class who gleefully endorses their diktats and fact checks, collectively Sophistry Incorporated. He says, their behavior, endorsed by every single entity which holds power in our society, is destroying us and has already poisoned us such that there may be no antidote. Yes, first they came for the unvaccinated. But that doesn't mean they won't come for you next. That is a powerful, powerful essay. Yes, there is a link to it in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I know it sounds like a flex. I really don't want to make it sound like, oh, look at me, look at this, I'm flexing on you. There were times when it was very hard 
to resist that pressure to get vaccinated. And I think one of the hardest things was, you know, I, as I watched family members get vaccinated, either because of job requirements or, um, you know, my wife did it out of a desire. She wanted to go visit my daughter in Germany. And that was one of the things Well, you're not going to be able to fly on the airlines. You're not going to be able to travel to another country if you don't have the vaccine. And I know a lot of people who did it for expediency. You know, I've got to do this if I want to keep my job. This was one of the first real tests that I have seen in a long, long time that required people to actually put on the line something very significant, to put something on the altar that they would be willing to give up in order to remain true to their principles. And if there's a silver lining to this, all I can say is the people I know who came through what what I think can, can rightly be called the most intense and widespread psychological warfare campaign ever mounted in human history. The people who came through it intact and who refused to give up their arm for that needle. They're some of the best people that I know. Now, the numbers are small. And by the way, I'm not condemning all those who did, because people who did take the vaccine had various reasons. Some of them really were in high-risk categories. Some of them, you know, had very difficult decisions to make. Do I want to continue my schooling? Do I want to continue with my job? I don't, I don't envy them for being in that position. But looking at the ones who successfully resisted all of that coercion, all of that pressure and ostracization, I've definitely identified the folks that I would would want to band with and have my back should uh, times get really difficult or things get really interesting. If the balloon goes up, I know who the people are who I could count on to have a backbone and a strong sense of uh, what's right and what's wrong. Now, again, I'm not trying to put down anybody else. I'm just saying this was the first real test that I can think of, at least within my lifetime, that put large numbers of people to that uh, to that dilemma of, well, what are you going to choose? The moment of truth is here. Pass or play. Which one are you going to do? So I tip my hat to those who found the courage to stand firm. Again, I'm sorry if it sounds like a flex. I'm really not trying to say, I we're better than you. All I will say is I'm very grateful, based on the information coming out now, that I did not give in to the coercion earlier. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right. Well, we, uh, we had one more great Supreme Court ruling that came out here of late. And they have been on quite a roll this time. When I say a great Supreme Court ruling, I'm saying it because, yeah, I, I agree with it. But I agree with it in the sense that it actually lessened the control of government. And the one I'm talking about is uh, in a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court has dealt a massive blow to Biden's climate change agenda by recognizing that there are, in fact, limits to uh, some of these three-letter agencies within the U.S. government. This is an article from Zero Hedge by Tyler Durden. says, at the same time it gave the Biden administration a token victory by overturning Trump's Remain in Mexico rule, 
The U.S. Supreme Court also struck a major blow to Biden's fight against climate change when in a landmark ruling, SCOTUS also curbed the ability of America's top environmental regulator, the EPA, to limit greenhouse gas emissions, siding with coal miners and Republican-led states. In a majority opinion authored by Chief Justice John Roberts, the justices ruled that in the latest example of Democratic overreach, the Environmental Protection Agency was not specifically authorized by Congress to reduce carbon emissions when it was set up in 1970. The ruling leaves the Biden administration dependent on passing legislation if it wants to implement sweeping regulations to curb emissions. Now, the opinion from the court's conservative majority said that a decision of such magnitude and consequence rests with Congress itself or an agency acting pursuant to a clear delegation from that representative body. And the justices added that they doubted Congress intended to delegate the question of how much coal-based generation there should be over the coming decades to any administrative agency. Now, the dissenting opinion, authored by Justice Elena Kagan and joined by the court's other two liberal justices, said the EPA had the authority to regulate stationary sources of polluting substances that are harmful to the public, adding that curbing the output of greenhouse gas emissions was a necessary part of any effective approach for addressing climate change. In other words, the usual green tripe that has sent the country to the edge of a hyperinflationary commodity disaster. Kagan wrote, the co- this court has obstructed EPA's effort from the beginning. The limits the majority now puts on EPA's authority fly in the face of the statute Congress wrote. Now, at the heart of the case is a disagreement over how broadly the EPA should be allowed to interpret portions of the 1970 Clean Air Act, particularly the sections that direct the EPA to develop emissions limitations for power plants. Dubbed West Virginia versus EPA, The case was brought by a host of Republican attorneys general and the coal industry. Their argument centers on regulation that never took effect, an Obama-era proposal known as the Clean Power Plan, which would have mandated that power plants make 32% reductions in emissions below 2005 levels by 2030. The Supreme Court ordered that rule to be suspended in 2016. That rule was later torn up by the Trump administration in favor of its affordable clean energy rule designed to support the coal industry. The Trump administration's regulation, however, was struck down by the U.S. Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit last year. Challenging the lower court's reversal of the Trump rule at the Supreme Court, West Virginia has argued that the Obama-era clean power plan relied on an overly broad interpretation of the Clean Air Act, and gave the EPA excessive and industry-transforming power. West Virginia argued that the lower court's interpretation of the law granted the EPA unbridled power to issue significant rules that would reshape the U.S. electricity grid and decarbonize sectors of the economy. It said the EPA should only have very limited authority to regulate emissions inside the fence line of power plants and cannot apply broader industry-wide measures like carbon credit trading or biomass co-firing. So, defending the case, Biden's EPA has said that nothing in the Clean Air Act makes a distinction between the the inside-the-fence line measures and broader industry-wide regulatory measures. Now, it also added that West Virginia's real concern was that the agency might introduce some elements of Obama's clean power plan into a future rule. But the EPA said that the Supreme Court is not authorized to issue an advisory opinion on the types of measures a future rule could contain. 
Dick Durbin, the Democratic whip in the Senate, predictably said the decision was a dangerous step backwards and threatens our air and our planet, adding it sets a troubling precedent both for what it means to protect public health and the authority regulatory agencies have to protect public health. Now, what he means is that the U.S. may once again be on the path to becoming self-sufficient in energy and not peddling money to corrupt green lobbies and interests. Tyler Durden says the ruling by the court's conservative majority is the latest in a string of dramatic decisions that have challenged established legal precedents, including the recent reversal of Roe v. Wade. Last week, it also struck down a century-old New York state law requiring an individual to show proper cause in order to carry a concealed gun in public, deeming the statute unconstitutional. The court on Monday also ruled in favor of a former high school coach dismissed for praying at football games, fueling the fraught debate on the separation of church and state. So here's, here's the question I have for you. What are we supposed to do? What do we do now? That, 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 you know, Biden's climate change agenda, at least in this instance, is being frustrated. What are we going to do if, if, if the government can't force some kind of decisive action to be taken, you know, to address climate change? You ready for the answer? You ready for this? We go on with our lives. It's really that simple. I mean, come on, at what point do you start to feel just a little bit skeptical about politicians saying, hey, for more power and more access to your money, your hard-earned money, I will address climate change. It ain't about them controlling the environment. It is not about them changing the climate. It's about people who are trying to gain more power and to do it at the expense of both your pocketbook as well as your liberties and your quality of life. Shared the commentary from Paul Rosenberg last week. Green equals poor. And that doesn't mean that, you know, to have a high standard of living, you've got to lay, you know, waste to the earth and leave strip mines everywhere and pools of oil laying around. It just means this green agenda is all about forcing you to accept a lower standard of living by people who don't have your best interests in mind. So you don't have to say yes. In fact, shifting gears here, we'll end on this note. Something to ponder as we head into the long Independence Day weekend. I thought this was interesting. From the Daily Mail in the UK, the headline reads, Quarter of Americans say they are ready to take up arms against the government. That poll also finds that more than a third of those currently own guns. Now, this was a poll of 1,000 U.S. voters, a survey conducted by the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics a couple of months ago. 37% who supported armed insurrection against the government currently own guns, the poll found. And the survey found that overall, 49% of Americans agreed that they more and more feel like a stranger in my own country. Now, it's kind of sensational the way that the, the Daily Mail is reporting this. That's probably to be expected for a UK newspaper. Okay, I don't. I still think they they haven't quite figured out what what's the problem with you colonists. <laughs> you know why why are you guys so rebellious? But the, here's the thing that I want you to to consider. When we celebrate Independence Day, and we've got a long weekend to celebrate, what exactly are we celebrating? And the truth of the matter is, we are celebrating the point where 
what were British subjects realized that their government was engaged in actively harming them. And they listed out that list of grievances in the Declaration of Independence, 27 different things that they submitted to the world as justification for them withdrawing their consent to be governed by the king and instead to assume the responsibility for governing themselves. Now, the king, of course, was like, no, you're not. You're not going to leave my control and sought to compel them by force to remain under his rule, at which point they were justified in taking up arms to resist the oppression the king was trying to force on them. I tell you this not to make you uncomfortable, though I'm sure it is making you uncomfortable, but simply to point out the same moral question, the same moral dilemma is present in our day. And all the assurances of politicians, well, now it's totally different. Why, you have representation. You can still vote. Yes, you can, but when you do, does it do any good? I mean, something I would really like to ask, those of you who voted for Mitt Romney, Oh, well, he's a good Republican. Brother Romney's this wonderful Republican. He's representing us well. Yeah, he's uh, he's one of those, what, 16 Republicans who voted for gun control. Just because. I mean, that's a violation of people's rights. Honest, good, law-abiding people. I guess the one I'm asking you to consider, is your government really responsive to you? Does voting really make a difference? Are they willing to aggress against you? something to ponder this is the brian hyde show